What's happening, man? Welcome to the show. I've been, been uh, very excited to have you on for this topic for a long time and uh, just pumped Absolutely. to really get into it today. So let's, um, yeah. if people are unfamiliar with you and your work and what you what you do, um, give them a little bit of a background. I'm going to do a little, you know, I'll do a little intro for you or something like that, and we'll put some stuff in the show notes. Right. But if people are living under a rock, they don't know who you are. Let's give them a little break. <laughs> Sure thing. All right. Well, you know, I, I grew up uh, playing sports, um, you know, pretty uh, scholastically, too. So I was I was into, you know, human biology. My dad was a biology teacher, um, had a good wrestling career in high school, played football, uh, loved lifting weights, did powerlifting, uh, went on to Michigan State, was on the wrestling team, was a four year starter, NCAA qualifier, um, you know, all that stuff. And then uh, and that's, that's when I started to get even more into the science of say, you know, nutrition, sports science. I mean, I, I, um, majored in uh, kinesiology. So kind of like exercise physiology type stuff. Um, but also started getting into a lot of the sports performance nutrition back then, which then translated into, you know, future desires after, after undergrad. And I was actually the strength and nutrition coach for a year while I was applying to med school. And I have an aunt, my mom's younger sister is a cardiologist. And when my younger brother and I, Spencer, who's well known in the social media circles, when we were visiting her and talking about all this stuff, we were talking about nutrition and insulin and all this stuff. And she goes, well, geez, seems like you should be an endocrinologist. And so I was like, oh, okay. I didn't really know what that meant. And uh, when I went to med school, um, when we did that section of endocrine, endocrinology, you know, the, the other things, not just obesity, diabetes, et cetera, and, and nutrition, but the other hormone axes and, and the negative feedback loops and all that stuff, it just happened to make a lot of sense to me. So I did really well in it, um, you know, somewhat serendipitously, I guess. It was, you know, a little bit lucky because um, a lot of people didn't get it uh, and, um, and ultimately went on to, you know, internal medicine residency in the Navy and uh, – actually got certified in obesity medicine first after I graduated, um, uh, finished uh, internal medicine residency and did a couple of years as a, an internist for the Navy before I went up to Walter Reed Military Medical Center for endocrinology fellowship and already had that background of obesity expertise, nutrition. And then, um, you know, also I'm very fortunate that uh, some national leaders and some of our, our big professional organizations then took me under their wing and got me involved in, uh, you know, writing obesity guidelines and giving presentations and stuff like that. And, um, you know, and then my younger brother and I have uh, tried to work on, you know, public education and, and uh, you know, fighting quackery. We have our Docs Who Lift podcast um, where we talk about some of this stuff from our perspective. Um, probably have to get you to, to, uh, if <laughs> you get on ours then, you know, and, uh, you know, share the wealth and everything like that. And, and now I'm, uh, starting a new endocrine department at my local hospital system, Holland hospital. And so we're going to really try to build a, a new endocrine diabetes, obesity, metabolic, uh, big comprehensive center. So that's where I am now. That's, that's very, very cool. And, um, I find that the, what we're going to talk about today is like, you know, mostly the weight loss medications, GLP one agonists, mm -hmm that this might be it, it, and maybe maybe I'm overstating it maybe it's just recency bias but it feels like there might be uh the greatest disconnect with like what you are doing in a clinical setting like mm -hmm. actually treating patients going through the right channels doing this the right way with monitoring and we're going to go through what that process looks yeah. like and it's such a big stretch to what like the average person thinks of these things i know that yeah. there's always a big gap between like a lay person understanding of something and what goes on in more of a clinical setting, but it feels like there's just such a huge gap. I made a post recently, just like basic understanding of this stuff. And it blew my mind that, that, that basic, very basic post was like incredible news to people, especially because this stuff's been out for a long, like, it's not like a, yeah. a new drug. And we're going to talk about that. And so what I'd like yeah. very broad stroke <laughs> surface level stuff, like um, what are, what is a GLP agonist? How how does it work? We're going to talk about potentially differences between GLP-1 agonist, semaglutide, and terzepatide in a bit. But I think mm -hmm. the ones people have heard about, Wagovi and all of that stuff, let's just start with <laughs> the theology, the, the science. Yeah, model. sure. What are yeah, they, the way how do they I, work, and how long have they been around? Yeah, so the way I describe it to patients is that, you know, we have these glucagon-like peptide hormones, GLP-1 hormones, that come from um, our intestines. That's basically how I describe it. And oh, there we go. <laughs> and uh, um, 
And what they do is, you know, is they, they, they participate in our overall sugar regulation system and, um, and weight and energy balance regulation system. But when, you know, we, obesity and diabetes has a broad spectrum of uh, genetic background. Do you want me to do something about that? I right can't, on. I actually can't hear it all that much. Okay, good. Okay. It's, um, it's totally fine for me. Okay. Good. Um, so, and so when, when people are then struggling with obesity and type two diabetes, these hormones that work f- are supposed to work for us aren't working that well for us. And so over time, a long time ago at this point now, uh, researchers were trying to harness it. And we actually learned a lot from bariatric surgery because these hormones increased after uh, like gastric bypass surgery. And it was noted that they helped play a role in, uh, in some of the benefits um, for, for appetite and, and glucose regulation. And so, so what they do is they, they essentially go up into the hypothalamus we have something called the arcuate nucleus that has a couple of receptors. I don't know how specific people want to learn about this, but this is what really regulates our appetite, um, cravings, satiety, um, and metabolism. There are two different parts to it. And we have, you know, leptin is a hormone that comes from our adipose tissue, and it plays a role on both sides of this. It's supposed to improve our satiety, uh, communicate to our brain that we have enough energy and that we need to quit eating, right? Basically. Um, the same thing with the GLP-1 uh, hormone and then ultimately these GLP-1 receptor agonists. So they go up to the hypothalamus, they improve our satiety, um, reduce uh, you know, our reward system a little bit, um, decrease palatability of, of, of food. Um, and then they also uh, work on the pancreas and um, in a in a glucose dependent manner, meaning they don't just tell the pancreas to make a bunch of insulin. Like we do have medications that do that, but they only work like as needed. So they don't cause people to have low sugars. Um, they slow gastric emptying. Okay. So that's an important uh, thing to think about. So it slows everything down. Worked on the liver and, and glucagon to help with uh, sugar regulation um, out of the liver. So that's kind of the basics. And then, you know, when we start talking about terzepatide, which is a dual agonist, it also includes the other one called GIP. And, and they, they seem to have similar actions. There's still a little bit of a mystery wrapped in a riddle exactly how, um, you know, all these different things work. And the, the stuff that's in the pipeline is very interesting because sometimes they're agonists, antagonists, and they all seem to be working. It's, it's very interesting. And even the researchers are kind of saying, well, geez, I don't know why this is working more than that one or whatever. But there, there are you know, certainly theoretical um, concepts coming out. So, so we'll see. But that's the basics of it. Yeah, and I'm definitely interested in, you, in your take on on what will what will ultimately become of terzepatide and, and semaglutide, mm-hmm. you know, just m- moving forward in terms of treatment for obesity. But I find it I find it interesting, and I'd love to hear you talk about how this. You mentioned okay, it has slows gastric emptying, signals to the hypothalamus that we're feeling satiated, but mm-hmm. that's not necessarily originally what the point was. I mean, we, you mentioned how it acts on the pancreas to help with insulin production. Yeah. That. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong and, and taking a run with it, but like that yep. was originally what it was, you know, yeah. uh, meant to treat. And so can we talk yep. a little bit about, hey, this is how this drug came about. And then this is how it came from maybe being a an, um, an ob- uh, diabetes based, you know, treatment into something that is now being treated for obesity or used to. Treat yeah. It. So, you know, it was I was still in medical school when exenatide, uh, known as Bietta, was first approved. And it was basically the newest, greatest medication. And this is the one that uh, came from the, the Gila monster, uh, the, the saliva. And, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and, and it did all the same things and it's, and it's very good. And it's still, you know, if there was nothing else, still a very good medication has good weight loss, has very good glycemic benefits for those with obesity complicated by type two diabetes. And then uh, came the daily dose of liraglutide, which was initially known as Victoza. And that was approved for type 2 diabetes. Again, very good weight loss, very good. Did they already know control. at that point? Did they did they already know at that point that it was also working for weight loss? I mean, obviously yeah. the, the synergistic <laughs> benefit to losing weight for insulin sensitivity and diabetic purposes. Yep. But did, were they already like, holy shit, this is also working for weight loss? Like that wasn't the intent. Yeah. The intent was glycemic control, better insulin production, let's say more directly focused on that end of it. And and then they were like, oh shit, this is also, people are also losing weight. And those two <laughs> things synergistically are helpful in this context. Yeah, absolutely. So, 
Yeah. So it was, it was well known with the early studies that not only were people having really good sugar benefits, but right. they were having weight loss benefits. So yeah. And then, and then the loraglutide, the Victoza was even better even for the weight. And so that was very well noted. And so um, that was actually approved when I was in residency, like around 2010 or so. And then not so long after that, I think it was, you know, like 2014 or so is when the higher dose of that was approved specifically for obesity, regardless of type two diabetes kind of thing. Um, and uh, because at that higher dose, it was having, you know, really good um, weight loss. And again, not, not as good as what we're going to talk about today, because the, the, the things have gotten better. But the company that makes loraglutide then ultimately ended up making the weekly semaglutide initially approved at um, lower dose than what we use now uh, for type 2 diabetes. And it had even better weight loss benefits. Uh, and people were doing really well. And then that was approved. Uh, well, initially, so the type 2 diabetes drug brand name was Ozempic. And then it was approved at the higher dosing uh, for obesity under the brand name of Wegovi just a few, you know, well, now it's been several years ago, I guess, but time flies. And it also feel if you're just I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, it might not feel like this stuff's been around for years. This might be the first time you've heard about it. And so I think even just reiterating what you just said, where the actual drug name or the actual name is semaglutide, but has been branded mm -hmm. for obesity yeah. under the brand name Wagovi. And it's been branded under for for treatment of uh, diabetes under uh, Ozempic. And so if you see semaglutide, Ozempic, Wagovi, like. It's not exactly the they're not exact synonymous uh, synonymous, but they're more or right. less, you know, two versions of the drug meant to treat two different things, you know, taken in two different amounts and dosage and they have different protocols. But we're talking about mm -hmm. a, a utilization of the same drug. Here. Yeah. And it's interesting. It actually drives me and a lot of other people crazy yeah. about how, you know, the, the awareness of this stuff just kind of blew up recently, even though these have been around for a while because of social media, I think. And then the media grabbed onto it, you know, and then people are using them. Uh, you know, there's a, some inappropriate use for sure. And it's just it's become almost inappropriately uh, popular, maybe yeah, a little oh, too sure. much. Absolutely. It's good that there's awareness, but then it's, you know, the, the awareness that's been raised is a little bit inappropriate. So, um, so there, there've been some problems. So it seems new to people, but you know, we've been using these medications for God, I, I, I hate to even say, you know, well over 15 years, you know, or I can't believe that. Was liraglutide or any of those ever approved for the treatment of obesity? So liraglutide was, so, uh, it, like I said, initially Victoza when I, in about 2010 was when I was in residency. And then a few years later, 2014 at a higher dose called, um, Saxenda. So same medicine, same exact thing yeah. approved at a higher dose, just like, just like, uh, uh Ozempic and Wegovi. Right. And, um, it's just that the weekly shot semaglutide, whereas liraglutide's the daily one, it just does even better for weight loss. I mean, there was even just a trial published last year head-to-head -head comparison like there were a bunch of other smaller little trials but um where where the the people in the placebo group on average of course this gets real heterogeneous right everyone has different responses but the placebo group had about two percent weight loss with their lifestyle the the daily liraglutide group that's at the dose of saxenda was six and a half percent weight loss and the weekly semaglutide which is Wegovi was almost 16% weight loss. This was relatively small compared to some of the big trials, but you know they just wanted to have this head-to-head -head comparison um, with the full doses straight up just so people could see. And, and that's pretty remarkable. I mean, that's, and when we talk about how much weight loss um, we're getting and why we care, it's really about what's on the inside that counts, right? The, these, this weight loss correlates to clinical goals. So when you start getting over 5%, that's why they approve these medications when, when a lot of people get over 5% weight loss, because you see a lot of clinical benefits, 7%, 10%, you start getting over that and you're getting really good clinical benefits like metabolic syndrome, prediabetes remission or diabetes prevention. You're starting to improve uh, fatty liver, preventing NASH sleep apnea benefits, you start getting over 15%. And, you know, we're really starting to talk about remitting a lot of these diseases. And you don't have to get down to normal, you know, what we call normal or, you know, ideal weight or anything like that. Um, but that's why that's so important, these numbers. Yeah. And, and I think we'll talk about like how long, at some point we're going to get to how long you should be on these drugs. And it does come back to like, well, mm -hmm. what's the goal? 
of taking this, uh, you know, in in all likelihood, it isn't a weight goal; it's a clinical goal, of which weight is yep. a you know, center, you know, plays a part for sure. Are you mm-hmm. are you at a point with? From what we've seen with terzepatide, like I'm thinking about like where I want to go with this conversation. I'm like, okay, I mm-hmm. want to hear about semaglutide research. And I know that, you know, I've seen all of the big studies. I think they're fun to talk about, but I almost think like, are, are you at, are you at a point where you're like, you know, we might waste time talking about semaglutide because terzepatide just seems to be way better. And maybe let's, maybe let's use our time today to kind of pivot and maybe talk about the comparison between the two. And sure. why I, I don't want to put words in your mouth if that is how you're feeling or not. <laughs> Um, I don't want to spend a half hour on semaglutide studies and then you'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah but terzepatide's way better. Yeah. We, well, know, so yeah, I mean, and it's and it's not like it's way better. Right. It's it's you know, head to head, and we'll we'll talk about some of the head-to-head uh, trials or that have been done. The, these are both, you know, people will call these say um second generation obesity and diabetes medications because they are they're just at another level now. Um, but also remember, everyone's different, right? There are different tolerances. Uh and, uh, you know, we can go over those. And so sometimes we go back and forth. Sometimes it's an insurance thing. Um, I'll say that we, we have very good cardiovascular outcome trials for liraglutide when it was used as, um, you know, at the dose of Victoza for people with type 2 diabetes and established cardiovascular disease. So that's important to know and why, why the, the higher dose Saxenda would, would be preferred for someone with obesity and cardiovascular disease. We also have that for semaglutide. We don't yet exactly have that for terzepatide, but I will say that an analysis of all the phase three trials thus far, now they're relatively short, right? They're not cardiovascular outcome trials, but it certainly shows that it's, we're expecting the benefit, which would make sense. Cause again, when you start getting over that 10, 15% weight loss, as long as there's not some adverse effect of the medication, that type of weight loss is what gets us the cardiovascular benefits. And so plus the mechanism of action, we expect it to have those benefits. So, so it should have that, but that, that is just something to consider that, that we consider when we're talking about an individual. Um, but yeah, so terzepatide, you know, it's, so it's a dual agonist. So it's glucose dependent insulinotropic polypeptide and GLP-1 receptor agonist. It's one molecule. It's not two molecules. It's one molecule. And just for example, so last year, let's see, when was this uh, published? 2021 or 20, yeah, 2021, they did publish in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, you know, head to head essentially in this, but this was in people with type two diabetes. So this wasn't comparing, uh, terzepatide or Monjero to Wegovy. It was actually comparing it to the modest or even Lodos, um, Ozempic or, or, uh, semaglutide. And it was, you know, it was almost 2000 patients. Um, they had relatively high A1C. Do you, do you, or your followers know what A1C is? Absolutely. A, yeah. Okay, so you know, it's, it's it basically is just a marker of red blood cells and their sugar, and it gives us an idea of what average blood sugars are. So these guys had almost eight and a half percent A one Cs, which is which is pretty high. We like A one Cs to be under seven for long term sugar control stuff. Sometimes six and a half or even better. And um, the bottom line, so they did this for for like a year, and you have to titrate up all these medications because of nausea. Okay, and so we'll talk about some of those side effects. But um, so you got to slowly titrate up. And the average A1C reduction was over 2% for the low-dose terzepatide, 2 and a quarter, and then 2.3 for the higher-dose terzepatide, and it was 1.9 for the 1-milligram semaglutide. So again, we could argue there is a 2-milligram ozempic dose. That's probably going to be a little bit closer to the to the 5-milligram terzepatide if we, if we had to do it. Um, but so there's, these are all good, right? That 2% A1C reduction from, from just over 8 that's remarkable on average. That's really good clinical benefit. And, um, and, you know, and a lot of people met their goals. Almost 90% of people on all these uh, doses got to an A1C of under 7%. So then, but then let's talk about the weight loss. So again, these are, the, these are type 2 diabetes. People with type 2 diabetes do struggle with weight loss compared to those without type 2 diabetes, even pre-diabetes. It's just a harder pathophysiology to, to get at. And so 
the uh, the weight loss in kilograms, which is about the same as percent in these studies, because everyone seems to be about a hundred kilo, uh, kilograms. kilograms. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Um, the the semaglutide one milligram got about six percent weight loss, and we know that would be a little bit more in the studies that compare, say, two point four semaglutide to one or the two to the one. A little bit, little bit better weight loss with those higher doses. But then the terzepatide doses, so five milligrams got seven and a half uh, kilograms weight loss. Uh, nine and a half with the 10 milligram dose and, and 11 kilograms with the 15 milligram dose. Um, so that, you know, that's, that's pretty darn remarkable. And that's in type two diabetes. That's, that's where we start to see really good clinical benefits. Just a quick pit stop. When we're talking about the relationship between the words semaglutide and Vigovian Ozempic, where semaglutide <laughs> drug and Ozempic and Vigovian are the brand names. When we're talking mm -hmm. about terzepatide, it's been, it's currently branded under the brand name Munjaro for Mungero. treatment of mm -hmm. type 2 diabetes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So terzepatide is Munjaro and it is approved for type 2 diabetes currently. Yes. Um, we certainly have data that we'll talk about where it was studied in people with obesity without type 2 diabetes um, and is very much expected to be approved this year for obesity without type 2 diabetes. How they decide to do the branding because uh, this gets complicated and, and yeah. uh, you know, between the FDA and the insurance companies, they're all working against us because, you know, it'd be nice to have these options a little bit more readily available for patients. Yeah. And you mentioned not briefly, but I think we could we could for the person who's not necessarily grasping the magnitude of what you just said in terms of A1C reduction and and weight loss um, as an independent variable, potentially like. Could you speak a little bit to the fact or just could we reiterate and highlight how ridiculous what you just said is in terms of like what kind of weight loss people are seeing over what time frame with with what sort of, you know, um, you know, we can talk about maintaining those those changes, whether it's A1C or reduction in weight loss whilst on the drug. But if you were like is trying to get somebody to understand how big of a deal some of this is with the research that we have, can we speak to that just a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, if you look at all the placebo controlled trials for weight loss medications for people with obesity or even type two diabetes, they always get what we would consider pretty good, decent, basic diet and exercise recommendations. They're not intensive. Okay. So, but they're usually only losing on average one to 2%. Now, again, there's individual variability, right? Some people respond very well. They're like, oh, they get a, an aha. They're, they're able to make those changes. But obesity pathophysiology makes it hard. It's easier said than done. And again, everyone has a different, they lie in a different spot in the spectrum of genetics that's working against them. They have different uh, you know, exposure to our obesogenic environment different medications, different, uh, you know, medical conditions, et cetera. But on average, yeah, it's like one to 2% weight loss for these placebo groups that are getting lifestyle recommendations. When we have um, sometimes, you know, we have intensive lifestyle uh, programs like the diabetes prevention program, the look ahead program. Um, and then there are a couple of these obesity medication trials that had an intensive lifestyle arm. Um, there's actually a very interesting one that we can talk about with uh, the Wegovi stuff. But um, those usually get, you know, around five, six, seven percent weight loss on average. OK, and that's pretty good for lifestyle. The problem is, ultimately, the body works against us. You know, you've heard about the set point, that area in the hypothalamus we talked about. It drives hunger. There's metabolic adaptation that works against us, and people regain their weight, even though they're still trying. And, and that's the problem. That's why we'll get into how technically these medications are approved for long-term use. Um, and so... But that's it. That's like the thing. And so, so for example, uh, if, if people want to look up step three, which was um, semaglutide, uh, it was published in JAM in 2021. They compared um, 2.4 milligrams of semaglutide, which is Wegovy, to um, to intensive lifestyle therapy. So instead of getting that one to two percent weight loss with the placebo arm, they got about six percent, which is pretty darn good. Interestingly, the semaglutide group got over 16% weight loss, which is 10% more than the placebo, more than the intensive lifestyle group. But here's the kicker. And, and for lifestyle like shrill, uh, shills like us, this is very interesting because the absolute amount of weight loss with the semaglutide in that was very similar to the other trials that did not have the intensive uh, lifestyle arm, even as the, the baseline for the semaglutide group. And so, you know, 
really what it seems to do, even in those with just very basic lifestyle recommendations, it just really supports the person's ability to stick to those basics. They don't even need that intensive. And by intensive, I mean, they're, be, they're having weekly visits at first, every other week visits, you know, with counselors, behavior lists, um, you know, meal replacement shakes, et cetera. And so that's what's really remarkable is that the, the medications help them do well with just the basic diet and exercise recommendations without the intensive lifestyle efforts. 16% weight loss is, is crazy. I mean, yeah. that's a, a, in, when I say crazy, I mean, it's an incredibly meaningful, <laughs> clinically speaking, meaningful amount. Yeah. People on these, in these studies tend to average around hundred kilos. We're talking like somewhere between like 30 and 40 pounds. If we're looking at that percentage, something mm-hmm. like that, um, that is just like, do we, and you said intense lifestyle intervention sees like six, 7%. Do we see anything come close to what these medications are doing in terms of weight reduction? Let's talk specifically. No. I think it's important to, to differentiate A1C reduction, weight loss reduction. They're synergistics to some degree, for mm-hmm. sure. But I think from a weight loss perspective, do we see yeah. anything close? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, bariatric surgery. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, exactly. You know, gastric yeah, yeah, sleeves yeah. and ruined by gastric bypass. But no, not not from not from lifestyle or or, um, or uh, medications uh, other than these. Yeah. So no, it's 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 outstanding. And and then the other thing I talk about when I give these talks to people is looking at those categorical weight losses. So how many people get over five percent, ten percent, fifteen, and twenty percent? And just for example, there was um, uh, in uh, in in step three um, with the the semaglutide. Uh, oh, you know, it was like eighty percent of people got over ten percent weight loss. And almost two thirds of people got over 15% weight loss. 40% of people got over 20% loss. We didn't even used to have on these, these publications, the 20% category, because it was like nothing like the placebo group. It's like down, it's like nothing. It's like single digits. So, but although on the other hand, it is nice to know that some people can actually respond to the lifestyle therapy. So, you know, so we have to keep that in mind too. Some people we can just educate and they, they can do well, but. So, um, uh, when we're looking at the difference between semaglutide and terzepatide, terzepatide is GLP-1 and GIP. Mm-hmm. And it is my understanding that that it is also a much less uh, like potent dose of GLP. And it is maybe a quarter as potent potentially. And compared to semaglutide might be a little bit more like half as potent. And those mm-hmm. those numbers and verbiage might be incorrect. And I'd love for your, to hear your take, but I'd be, we don't need to go so deep into it, but I am curious as to, okay, we are seeing right now that terzepatide seems to be performing a little bit better than semaglutide in the research and potentially even on average less side effects as well um again up for up for your your contention there for sure i'm not 100 percent sure on that but we could i'd be interested in a little bit maybe just selfishly a little bit of us like a theory or what we know about why that might be and do you think that we're gonna like we've moved on quote unquote maybe from liraglutide to semaglutide are we gonna see that same kind of like leaving semaglutide in the past a little bit moving on to something is this 3.0 here or are we, are both of these going to be living? Yeah, no, I, I think they're both going to be, um, you know, available. And like I said, there's more in the pipeline. Um, but yeah, in the, you know, in the trial that came out last year with terzepatide, um, you know, the, the amount of weight loss was, was even better. I mean, it just was, it, it, it's very good. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're really talking about even more people achieving that 10, 15 and 20% weight loss. Um, and, uh, and with that comes all the cardiometabolic, uh, benefits from that with the terzepatide and it, and it will be approved this year for, for weight loss specifically in people with obesity, whether they have type two diabetes or not. And, um, and, and the side effects, you know, it's, it's hard to say it, some of those uh, things you were talking about, because it is, it's a dual agonist. It's not like two separate molecules put together. I've seen some, some interesting debate, um, you know, on that, to be honest. And so I, I don't necessarily want to dig into those weeds per se, <laughs> just because it almost doesn't matter. Like what, who cares? It doesn't matter um, in, in the real life. And so let's just, I mean, to talk about, um, you know, the trial that was published last year in New England Journal of Medicine, just for example. So again, this is in people with obesity. So we talked about the one with type two diabetes comparing semaglutide and, and terzepatide. Can I, can I so pause this you was, for one second on yeah, that? Go ahead. So, so, so when they're, when they're, 
uh, picking a cohort to study, if it's if it's people with diabetes or people with obesity, is th the point of this study was to pick people who have obesity without diabetes so that they could yes. they could uh, objectively look at it as a treatment for just obesity. That was kind of the point. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And that yeah, and they do that for all these. Uh, you know, for loraglutide at the higher dose compared to the the lower dose of those for type 2 diabetes. And in fact, they generally exclude type 2 diabetes. Right. These, just to show. But they include pre-diabetes, which is important because we're showing diabetes prevention. Right. So if we can start treating the higher risk people, by the way, people with obesity, metabolic syndrome, you know, high triglycerides, low HDL, high blood pressure, um, pre-diabetes, which is impaired fasting glucose, just a little bit high levels of, of that, you know, on that uh, spectrum of uh, we'll, we'll call it um, dysglycemia, but they haven't lost their pancreas function to the point of having true, true hyperglycemia that leads to um, ultimate complications. But fatty liver, all these complications of obesity, just not type two diabetes, because that's it is a little bit different animal at that point. Um, but uh, but it, but it's important to um, to check in these in these patients. And so so yeah, so last year, so we had all those terzepatide trials really published like in two, 2021, which led to its approval for type 2 diabetes. So last year was the Surmount 1 trial that was published around, eh, we're getting close to it about a year ago. Um, and uh, and I love to name but Anya Yesterboff because um, I've worked with her and she was the lead author of this. So it's really cool. She's like a rock star. And the so again, they did you know basic lifestyle interventions, placebo group, got a little over 2%, actually it was like two and a half uh, to 3% for those who really completed the trial weight loss. So again, pretty good placebo group. The five milligram dose of terzepatide on average got 16% weight loss. The 10 milligram dose was over 21% weight loss. And actually the 15 milligram dose wasn't a lot higher, it was 22 and a half percent weight loss. But that's, I mean, that is just absolutely unremarkable. That's 19 to 20% placebo subtracted, meaning 20 per, almost 20% more than what the lifestyle intervention group got um, with those higher doses of terzepatide. And then again, that categorical weight loss, where we really see these benefits, over two-thirds of those higher dose, uh, the people in the higher doses got 15% weight loss and over half got 20% weight loss. Remember I said, well, geez, we didn't even used to have the 20% weight loss category. Well, in this over a third of people in those higher doses got 25% weight loss. It's just nuts. Now we're, I mean, that's really knocking on the door of bariatric surgery. And again, the pipeline is cooking and there's, there's more coming and we'll see. I, I hope now that the, you know, Pandora's box has been opened and we're going to get uh, safety and efficacy data, more competition because the other thing we need is we need cost reduction. Um, and that's a huge problem because for right now, it's really, really only the highest risk people, those with metabolic syndrome, prediabetes, bad sleep apnea, et cetera. And then, and then of course, type two diabetes who get the most bang for the buck of these medications. If they were dirt cheap, then all those people using it to lose a little bit of weight, eh, maybe wouldn't be out of the realm. You know what I mean? But for now, that's totally not indicated. And there are still side effects. There's still drugs. They are medications. So we really shouldn't take medications unless we absolutely have great benefit to risk ratio. Let's talk a little bit about who, how does one qualify for this medication? How does somebody go through the right channels to get this medication? What it costs for somebody? Um, and then let's move into some of the side effects of the drugs. Yeah. So anybody who has uh, obesity and type 2 diabetes uh, you know, really should be considered for these medications, um, you know, uh, assuming cost and coverage are, are appropriate because they are expensive. You know, they're around $1,000 or even more a month in the United States, by the way. So that's a whole nother debate <laughs> that we can, we'll skip that one for, t for today. Um, but then, um, and then insurance coverage is even more difficult for the, the higher doses that are approved for weight loss, for obesity. Um, but really, those those people who have obesity, they've struggled. They anybody who gets referred to me has tried plenty of times nutrition and exercise efforts, and again, that the physiology of obesity works against them. So, um, and the higher the risk, the higher the severity of the disease of obesity, based upon the complications, the more benefit they'll get. Thus, the better cost effectiveness of these medications, right? And so. Yeah, someone with a little bit of excess weight, but they're very healthy and, and uh, you know, we could even argue maybe don't even truly have clinical obesity based upon, say, you know, 
BMI exam, waist circumference, all that stuff, and they're and they're metabolically healthy. They really, they, I mean, they shouldn't be taking these medications. Um, and I know that's happening. <laughs> I know it's happening. I hear it all the time. Unfortunately, out in Hollywood, all that stuff. But um, but they're still drugs. They do still have potential, you know, side effects, and that that gets you to your next question. And and a lot of people get some nausea, uh, some diarrhea, vomiting, constipation. The GI side effects of these are the most prominent. Now. I tell patients if they can weather the storm, generally it's going to resolve and they're going to be able to tolerate it okay. But they do have to slowly titrate up the dose. Sometimes on an individual basis, we have to do all sorts of things, you know, keep them on a lower dose. We have, we have some little tricks of the trade to help them with that stuff. Generally speaking, in all these trials, though, the dropout rate um, because of the side effects is actually pretty low because they're having good benefits usually. So, um, you know, but, but it can be anywhere from, you know, five to 15% dropout rate in for, for these types of medications, but all the benefits really outweigh those risks. Um, some of the other, uh, actual, uh, side effects, um, you know, concerning side effects that people have heard about that may or may not be true, uh, like pancreatitis. So people have heard about pancreatitis. There's been a concern with all these medications because of some associations seen in some studies. We know it's working on the pancreas. Um, but in all the meta-analyses, it really doesn't look like there's an increased risk of pancreatitis from the medications. It does look like there's a small but but statistically significant increased risk of, say, gallbladder disease. And gallstones, of course, can lead to pancreatitis, but so, so can obesity, type 2 diabetes, and rapid weight loss. So, um, But that's that's still a very small number, um, the, the gallbladder disease, but it's still something uh, to think about. I think it, I think it's just helpful to acknowledge that there, there's not zero risk, and so mm-hmm. the 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 less healthy you are, the better that risk-to-reward ratio is, yeah. Uh, and it's like, you know, if, if you are by all accounts, by all objective clinical accounts healthy, then the risk reward ratio just there, there's not much of a reward outside of, you know, potentially like I don't want to be, you know, v- vanity weight outside of just looking right. You know, talking about clinical yep. health markers here. There seems to not be a huge benefit for you. Um, short, short in terms of short term side effects, we're looking at things like GI distress and nausea and mm-hmm. In terms of long-term side effects, you mentioned some of the things just now. Uh, how how if someone says, "Okay, I'm listening to you. I, I, I'm going to be a little nauseous and I get a little GI distress," but like to me, that's worth it. I just want to lose some weight, and I don't kind of mind. You know, some people are even would classify the nausea as like part of the deterrent to yeah. Thus, yeah. You know, However. So- yeah. To that point, though, yeah. it, it actually in all the trials, nausea is not correlated with the weight loss success. Gotcha. So like not, they continue to, right. So actually the mechanism of action is not the nausea. Correct. And so people yeah, who don't get nausea do just as well. And that's a, that's, that's a good that's point. Important. I was going to uh, bring that up. It's uh, cause that's a common misconception. You know, yeah. people think, Oh God, of course they're losing weight. They're nauseous all the time. It actually has nothing to do with it. Uh, you know, looking at the big picture. Um, so that is important to know. And plus once they, once that nausea resolves, they still continue to do well long-term. Right. It's more yeah. the fullness than the I'm. Yes, it's that. Know. Yeah, the good satiety, the decreased in the 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 food seeking behavior, um, the palatability, and all that stuff. But we do have. Um, oh, there's one other thing that people always ask about, and that's the thyroid cancer. Yeah. So um, there's a black box warning because when they were studied in rodents, rodents have higher numbers of C cells in their thyroid. So not not are not like the classic type of thyroid cancer that we see most commonly, which is actually pretty low risk. This gets into something called medullary thyroid cancer. So um, rodents have more C-cells. They also have more GLP uh, receptors on their C-cells, and there was some concern of that. This has not panned out in humans. There was a case control cohort published earlier this year that that made it look like, well, maybe there's an increased risk of all sorts of thyroid cancers. But it was it didn't have the right controls, um, and so you know they were just finding more. If we started screening everyone for thyroid cancer, we'd find a lot more. It happened in South Korea several years ago um, when they just started doing ultrasounds and everyone and their thyroid cancer incidents went way up. But again, most thyroid cancers are not really that high risk, and you know the complications were still like really really minimal. So so that's that part. Um, and as far as like kind of mitigating the uh, side effects, especially the nausea and the GI stuff, there was a, a, a nice um, guidance published in the journal Clinical Medicine uh, just this year, clinical recommendations to manage the GI adverse events in people treated with GLP-1 receptor agonists. And, you know, talk about eating habits, eating slowly, only really if you're hungry, 
you know, don't force yourself to eat. You don't have to eat. We need to make sure people get their nutrition. Um, don't lie down after meals. Stop when you feel satiated. So um, my dad many years ago went and refereed some wrestling in Japan and he came back and he, he came up, you know, he decided to always use this little catchphrase where he, it's called a Harry Hachibu, where you're just like satisfied. And every time we'd all overeat, he'd go, I'm a wee past Harry Hachibu. So um, you're, don't go past Harry Hachibu. So when you're satiated, stop. Um, sometimes maybe increased small meal frequency in these cases can, can be helpful. Um, and also food composition. So instead of being like, say, you know, going keto and, and on, you know, having unlimited amounts of fat, especially greasy, saturated fat type stuff, then, you know, a lot of them do that. Uh, you, you really probably want to cut down your fat, um, and, uh, have a look, maybe a little bit lower fat, um, avoid greasy stuff, avoid restaurant foods. Um, that's, those are kind of some of the best, best, uh, prevention strategies. I think that came out of this. What's the longest term study we have on, on any of these medications, because I'm just, I'm just thinking about, okay, we have short term and you could say these are like discomfort things that are like GI distress, nausea, but like, mm-hmm. you know, you just t- touched on a couple of the things that, you know, thyroid cancer, some of them that might seem like, okay, maybe we need to worry about them, but are there, are there things like what, what do we, what evidence, what length of time have people been on this and that we've looked at them to well, be, to, you know, what do we really think are the long-term potential downsides? Yeah. So, um, you know, randomized controlled trials, they don't go that long. Right. I mean, there's just there's not enough money to do that. For example, we we do have just recently published was a two year um, uh, randomized controlled trial for semaglutide. And it showed the weight maintenance of over twelve and a half percent compared to a little bit of regain of that, you know, two down to one percent weight loss for the placebo group Um, talked about, you know, improved body weight cravings and better control of eating over the two years. As far as safety, though, we do have a lot of monitoring of the patients who have been on all these different types of medicines. Like I said, exenatide going all the way back to when I was in med school, 2000, you know, whatever it was, 2005, six, seven, whenever that was approved. And, uh, and then liraglutide approved in 2010, the higher dose approved a few years later. And then we have a bunch of other uh, medications that are still only approved for uh, type 2 diabetes. And so these have been monitored, not in randomized controlled trial settings, but certainly big, huge cohorts, um, you know, keeping an eye on, on these things. Um, insurances do it. Healthcare systems do it. Um, drug monitoring. Uh, and certainly the, the companies do it too. And, and you know, so far all we see are benefits and, and no risks or compared to the risk. There's minimal risks, do no you, concerning risks. Do you, I guess, hold some reservation as far as a declaration that there are none? I mean, I'm thinking. Nah, like, nobody should ever do that. <laughs> you know, we don't know. I mean, yeah, we, exactly. we don't know what we don't know, you know, right. and that's um, it's it certainly because we know that they have these cardiovascular benefits and they and again, this gives gets back to the the higher the risk and you have yeah. that gets better. Um, the, the more benefit we, we, we know, we, we really do know that the long term benefits are going to outweigh the risks in those people. But the less risk you have, you know, we don't know. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. That's in a very important point, though, and that is how I feel about it, where, listen, we're talking about net. Everything is about net. Mm-hmm. And if you have more health complications and we can make those better and then maybe we find out that there was a small downside to the, you know, you being. But but you you would you know, you've had such a big benefit from where you were that, you know, the more unhealthy you are, the more benefit, the more it's worth taking the chance on something we, we aren't 100 percent sure on. Although, like you said, so far things look like they're checking out. Yep. Uh, but I think that that's Absolutely. where people really need to, when I say people, I mean those, I guess everybody need to really assess their own yeah. potential benefit. And if they're, if you're, if, if from a health perspective, there really are none for you and it's just a matter of, I want to lose a couple pounds for right. vacation or something, then you really are taking a chance on like, we don't know what we're going to learn five, 10, 15, 20 years mm-hmm. from now. Um, yeah. And and I, I guess that, that, that kind of brings, well, I'd like to actually, before we even talk about, do we need to be on them forever? Cause that's such a huge question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, is what we've seen in the research in, t- in terms of losses in, in muscle and lean body mass and how much, of that, how much is that a concern for you? What do you talk to, in terms of patients, what are you talking to them about in terms of mitigating this? How big of a deal is it? What's your level of concern? Mm-hmm. All of that. Absolutely. So, yeah, actually, Spencer and I talked about this on a, on a recent podcast on our Docs Who Live podcast because, um, you know, a, a guy named Peter Atia, 
who, who's not an obesity or diabetes expert, he was making a big deal about this and kind of scaremongering about it. Any weight loss intervention ultimately results in some lean mass loss. Now, some of that's, you know, stuff like water and, and things like that, but, but we never want Measuring anybody error. to lose. Yeah. We don't want anybody to lose any muscle mass. Yeah. And they, they took in, uh, in the semaglutide trials, they took a very small part, like, you know, a few hundred people and did DEXA scans and stuff like that. And it, and it was a little bit more lean mass loss than maybe what you would expect. But then even in the placebo group, there was like more lean mass loss. So, it, you know, some of that didn't make any sense. And so it is concerning, but you know, it happens in bariatric surgery. It happens in any dietary intervention. These are basically working on, you know, essentially just supporting our dietary interventions for the weight loss. Right. And so there, there's no mechanism as to which, you know, these medications specifically cause muscle loss. That doesn't, you know, there's no reason to think that. And so I know it's cliche, but as docs who lift, we want everyone to do some resistance training. So something that I think we need to prioritize, um, is resistance training more than maybe the aerobic training now that we have such good medications because we're, they're going to lose weight. Let's focus on maintaining muscle mass. Um, and then, you know, from the resistance training perspective, and then the other types of exercise for the health benefits for sure. Yeah. That, that, that's so no, I'm not that worried about it if we do it right. Yep. And I think, I think I have, I have a couple of thoughts. One I've listened to and, and read a lot of Peter's stuff on this, and that's where some of my thoughts come from. Mm-hmm. But I, I come back to the Nothing mechanistically is happening where this is causing muscle right. loss. It's that people are it's that people are eating so few calories that a large mm-hmm. calorie deficit is gonna pull a little yeah. bit more lean mass and all the things that you would normally do to retain muscle, like you can still do those things. Yes. You eat protein, and, you can pay attention to protein, yeah. you can do resistance training. And I think you made a great point. And I'm thinking of shout out Steph, one of my clients who's who's been having really great results uh on on Vagovi. And uh, you know, we talk about how you know, when we were working on just just her lifestyle adaptation, you know, just lifestyle adjustments that we had a nice even benefit between spending time on aerobics, spending time on resistance training. But now that calories are naturally coming down and that deficit can be created a little bit more with the intake side, it, it's more of like a, hey, both are still good. But if you only have 30 minutes, I want you to go do your resistance training sort of thing. Just kind of fall on that side of the fence. Is that something you kind of not? Yeah, aware? absolutely. And and one other point to kind of to counter the, the Peter Tia concerns is that even in these people who, yeah, are maybe losing a little bit more muscle mass than we want. Guess what? All the clinical benefits are there, right? We talked about the glycemic benefits, the lipid benefits, the blood pressure benefits. Um, they're feeling better, their mental health benefits. So despite, you know, a little bit of lean mass loss that we don't want, they're still getting the clinical benefits that matter. Yeah. So again, that's, that's the goal. It's what's on the inside that counts. Yep. I not along with a lot of that. And I also am always, you know, even non, non weight loss medication discussion of don't go in such a big doubt. It's a very similar discussion. Obviously one is medication Mm -hmm. induced. Another one is just, you know, people get really worried about muscle loss in, in, Mm -hmm. in the field of body composition change. And I always think to myself, like, you have to focus on the net outcome. If somebody loses mm-hmm. 40 pounds and some of it's lean body mass, so yeah, okay, maybe you want to limit that, but it's probably still a net win. And there's mm-hmm. not, like, I just always, I always feel like, yeah, like let, imagine you had a client who didn't resist and strain through this whole process going on Wagobi or, or you know, one day, two mm-hmm. times, whatever, and they lose weight. And maybe during that time, they didn't feel great. They were a little nauseous and, and they were beginning to build some of these habits. Like you can regain lean body mass later too. Absolutely. Muscle yep. loss, muscle that you've lost is gone forever. Um, right. And if somebody, for whatever reason, there are circumstances where maybe that's like, it's going to be easier for them to not do that as much. And, you know, they don't have as much energy because they're not eating as much. And, you know, spending fucking four hours in the gym lifting isn't realistic. And that doesn't mean right. that that person has lost muscle forever. I, I don't want people to right. lose muscle, but I also don't want you to think, hey, I, I lost muscle in a cut. You know, whatever it's weight loss uh, medication, mm-hmm. just regular person doing this lifestyle related. But like, yeah, okay, great. Like when you go back to eating at maintenance, whatever. This is slightly tangent, yeah. tangential, yeah. but like you're yeah, bringing no. that lean body mass. Yeah, back? no, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Let's discuss needing to be on them forever. Um, that yeah. is the question that we will ultimately get is, Hey, I'm going to even whether if I'm so, whether I'm someone who's doing this for a couple pounds of vanity weight, which will be a direct question. I ask you afterwards, like, what do we talk about to, to that person? But whether, whatever your goal is, like, if I get off it, do I do, do all the benefits just return to normal? And so do I have to be on them forever? And is that a big concern? 
Yeah. So, and this gets back to the obesity pathophysiology. So any, any trial we've ever done where people lose weight, whether it's nutrition, exercise, et cetera, they, they lose their weight. And unfortunately, when you stop doing whatever it is, and especially the medications, you stop treating that area in the hypothalamus, the weight gain starts to come back. So, you know, for example, in that step three trial we talked about, um, uh, or well, one of the one of the smaglotide trials, you know, they actually had a run-in phase where everyone got it, and over twenty weeks they had over ten percent weight loss. Then they randomized them to continue the semaglutide or switch to placebo. The semaglutide group lost another eight percent, and the placebo group started to go up. And this has been shown in every single uh, trial um, of all these different types of medications. In the first one um, for semaglutide, they once they stopped the treatment, this wasn't they didn't switch them to placebo or anything, but they lost you know sixteen percent of their weight. The placebo group was doing okay. They started to even regain their their weight in a fifty two week um, you know off treatment extension phase, and uh, and unfortunately, the the people who had been on semaglutide after losing over sixteen percent of their weight relatively over a year rapidly regained um, a significant amount of weight they still had about you know six percent weight loss compared to the placebo but um you know they they regained most of the weight and that's been shown pretty much in in all the trials um there was a there was a cool trial several years ago with the the liraglutide or the saxenda um where again they gave everyone um they, they actually enrolled anybody who could lose about 6% of their weight before medication. So this was taking essentially lifestyle responders, which was nice. And so everyone enrolled in the trial had to lose 6%, or they, I think the goal was like 5%, but on average, they lost 6%. And then they randomized them to the high dose of liraglutide, which is Sexenda, or continued placebo. The people who continued placebo actually maintained that weight loss because, again, they were lifestyle responders, right? So they did well, they continue to do well. But the liraglutide group um, lost another 6% weight loss. And then at the end of that next year, they stopped that. And you can see in the graph starting to regain the weight a little bit closer to where the, the other lifestyle responders were. They were all lifestyle responders. So yes, basically that's why all medications approved for weight loss are going to be indicated for long-term use because it's a long-term chronic relapsing disease state. Now, how we deal with that in the future for cost effectiveness and stuff, I have some ideas. I think maybe we can get away with lower doses, you know, extended doses. I know there's something in the pipeline that's like a monthly dose that's supposed to be good. Um, that might be cost effective um, for long-term maintenance. And so, you know, that's something we're going to have to figure out in the future. But yes, long-term use. <laughs> that's the thing. I'm going to say something. You could tell me you agree, mm -hmm. slightly agree, slightly disagree, but I'll say that that to me, like sounds like a, someone's like, see, you're just going to like, I get comments like that. If I post about something like this, like dude, the people will just gain their weight, but like no yeah. shit almost. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's my point yeah. is I'm not surprised right. that that's the right. case. Like weight, uh, obesity is a chronic disease and thus chronic, uh, you know, a chronic intervention is mm -hmm. likely required. And yeah. And, if you understand what these drugs are doing, you would understand that when you take them out, that this person will go back physiologically to who they were before and yep. in all likelihood return to a level of hunger that they had before, like a level of lacking satiety that they had before. Mm -hmm. and, and again, in a free living scenario, probably go on to eat to what they were eating before, which I mean, it just it just isn't a critique, in my opinion. It's OK. It's, it's a fact, potentially. It just it's, is what it is. Yeah, it is what it is. And and the second thing I, I would say is that um, um in that in that regard in terms of it being something forever i think it highlights the misunderstanding of the genetic component here mm -hmm. people think that yep. this is like they're like it's not fixing their lifestyle i'm like you're right it's not it's and i would i will say something that i'm i know i'm sitting in front of a very highly qualified doctors so i know i probably <laughs> no I, I, just, I know i'm probably oversimplifying it but to me i want you to spit it up chew it up spit it back out mm -hmm. to me like, how you feel it but i think of it in a way of like hey these people people who have obesity on some level genetically are mm -hmm. at a disadvantage and oh, yeah. their disadvantages through a multitude of pathways has to do with hypothalamus has to be maybe mm -hmm. production maybe a, a bunch of things yep we are with this drug giving them something that they didn't don't have a genetic predisposition for in terms of a good a good way uh they mm -hmm. don't they don't have those genetic components that that 
help them feel satiated. I mean, people, you know, if, if you all of a sudden became 20% hungrier and 20% less satisfied with each meal you mm-hmm. eat, I bet you, you eat 20% more on average. Yeah. So I, I see it as like, hey, we're, we're giving the, like, I, again, I don't want, it's not completely analogous to somebody with type one diabetes doesn't produce insulin and we're giving them that now. But to me, it seems like, hey, we're, we're, um, not fixing, but we're augmenting something genetic. Yeah. This person doesn't do well, and 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 it's almost leveling the playing field. Maybe it's even better than that in some way. You know, it's super supernatural levels, but yeah, yeah. The, the leveling the playing field is a good point. So something we all hear, and I remember hearing it for the first time from an NIH physician who came to see me when I was at Walter Reed, and yeah. he said, "Wow, this is what it's like to be normal." Yeah, and now we hear that all the time. People Fuck all yeah. the time say. Oh, this is what it's like to be able to just eat and not be obsessed with food all the time. There are people who that's all they think about, no matter what they eat and how much they eat. And th- and they say that they say this is what it's like to be normal. And by the way, as far as the the, the long term therapy stuff, you know, a lot of the complications of obesity require long term management um, medications. So hypertension, we would never just stop their blood pressure meds because their blood pressure is good on blood pressure medications, right? right? Same yep. with their type two diabetes meds. Same with their uh, you know lipid medications, etc. But at least now we're treating the underlying root issue. Oh, most of the time. I mean, there, there are obviously some, uh, you know, other things that cause those, those uh, disease states, but, but most of it is they're all obesity related complications. And so now we're treating the underlying root issue long-term. And I'll tell you, most of our patients end up getting off a lot of other medications, blood pressure medicines being one of the primary ones. Um, people who have type two diabetes and they're on insulin, we get them off insulin all the time, you know, so they, they reduce their, their other medication needs. Yep. I, I see this argument of like um, come from two two classes of people. One, people who have never worked with uh, mm-hmm. people who have obesity, who aren't like you had said, like don't really comprehend this understanding of how hungry and the cravings and these things that are just different from you. And second is some survivorship bias, people who had obesity, maybe that didn't, that did, did just fine with lifestyle and assume that that's how everyone else is going to respond. And it just, I have a client who's taking the medication and we worked together for a year, year and a half beforehand. And we made some nice headway with lifestyle adjustments. It was fantastic, but there was just, um, it is just a different scenario. And I think people need to be more compassionate towards the genetic differences here that make weight loss harder for some people than others genetically. Mm Um, and, and, you know, you said, Hey, this is what it feels like to be normal. I I mean, the amount of iterations of that quote that I've heard of like, Hey, this is what it feels like to be able to decide to stop eating, or this is what it feels like to be, you know, satiated in a meal without feeling a loss of control. Like these are just things that if you don't work with somebody in this circumstance, you just don't understand. And I think that that's, we need to be more compassionate to the genetic differences and how I, I will tell you the two people in this podcast right now, you and I don't have that issue. And, right. and I, and I think that that's just, you know, I think a lot of the, the, the fucking health and fitness space, like people need to come mm-hmm. out and remind people, like I have a genetic advantage. I get more yes. full than people. I, I, I get more full. My metabolism can upregulate more. I can burn, you know, I, I have the ability. Absolutely. To and so you're right just, on. Everyone's just, different. Yeah. And we just need to be more compassionate to those genetic differences. And I just feel like people just assume that this is only a lifestyle personal responsibility thing. And right. it's not, most people are becoming, yeah. are, are getting to feel the way you feel for the first fucking time. And it's powerful. Yep. Yeah. It is. I know that's exactly what they say. It's amazing. Yeah. It's awesome. I love, I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's, if you've, I, you experience it all the time, so you know, but it's, yeah. it's been, I, you know, I've been doing this for a decent amount of time, almost a decade. And only in the last couple of years have I had clients who have taken this and it is, mm-hmm. it's special. I'm not saying it's perfect or a cure all. Yeah, right. But no. it's special. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing's perfect, but, but it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's speak directly to the, actually, before we do that, I want to ask you a question. You've been obviously <laughs> shit, man. You in a clinical mm-hmm. setting, using these drugs for a lot longer than they've been popular because Kim Kardashian takes them, but Um, but what have you seen done, done personally and seen in terms of, like you said, kind of, um, either a weaning off or reduction in, in the dosing. And I know that we can't generalize, but I'm curious what you've seen Mm -hmm. maybe work a little bit, not work as well. And, and how that's gone, how how you've managed patients that maybe are on five years plus going on that timeframe. Yeah. So, um, yeah, some people have been able to sort of deescalate the dose and, uh, and get away with it. Um, most people have just maintained on their doses. A lot of them, um, and again, this gets into insurance coverage and stuff. So, you know, I obviously see a lot of patients who have type two diabetes and, and other high risk things. And so, th- so they end up on, on their diabetes 
um, doses regardless. Um, I will tell you that the biggest frustrating issue is the insurance coverage stuff. So I also have plenty of people who have now been denied continuing their medications and now they're struggling with what we just talked about. Weight regain, their hunger, they're not feeling as well, they're frustrated. Um, how does and it's unfortunate. And sometimes how does insurance make that call? Insurance company, I you know, boy, that could be a whole nother podcast with someone who has more expertise than I do because it sure is money. Um, you know, and, the, and we also have to find a way to address why the heck there's so much more expensive here and that that again that's a whole nother level a little bit beyond my comprehension i have thoughts but it's hard to say i you know insurance companies kind of try to run the show unfortunately you know everyone has their people that they blame for why our healthcare system is so dysfunctional i blame insurance <laughs> big insurance you know government big insurance all that stuff and i don't know how to fix that but um but it's a problem that we run into and very frustrating for people yeah that's something um that I've I've yet to have that process of like wondering what will happen over the long term and and does insurance all of a sudden stop covering this and cost becomes an issue. Mm -hmm. Those are obviously some those are things that we're going to have to come up against because yep. people are going to, you know, not maybe be on it forever, but potentially be on it forever. And we got to mm -hmm. figure that out. Yeah, that's why I'm hoping, you know, with all this stuff coming down the pipeline, that competition, competition. will, you know, um, you know, will help reduce the costs, have more supply. You know, maybe we can get some insurance you know, regular, I don't know about regulation, but, um, reforms or something, you know, all that. Um, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> Something's got to give. And I can imagine you could go down the insurance discussion route for a long time, but I find that oh, fascinating. We're like, they also clearly aren't understanding that this is a right. chronic disease just because I'm at this current moment, metabolically healthy doesn't mean I now no longer need these drugs anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, there's all sorts of goofy things that happen when they start denying or taking it away. Okay, so so I'll, I'll I want to be respectful of your time. We're already over the hour, but um, and I and I loved I will have to have you back on for endocrine disrupting chemical discussion. Yeah, That's actually, I was going to say I'm, I I might send you something. Uh, the, awesome. the endocrine society um has done a lot of work with endocrine disrupting chemicals, you know, and talking about plastics and how you can kind of at least minimize exposure. That's a complicated deal, but um, yeah. I would you know for that point uh, tell your listeners to check out endocrine society's work on endocrine disrupting chemicals and okay. yeah, learn a little bit about it and minimizing those risks. Cool. I'll appreciate that. I definitely take a look at that because I think it's just a. Uh, I actually uh, feel that there's th these things are not inert, and if and if, uh, if somebody mentions them, they're automatically a quack. And I'm like, well, oh no, no, there's there's a lot to it. Yeah, I don't necessarily know what you know. There there are some uh, things you can do to minimize those you know exposures, but again, it, it's a complicated deal. Correct. No, and 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 it's true. It's absolutely true. Yeah. Cool. Um, all right, let's let's I want to close out. I want to talk directly to somebody who comes to you and maybe they never show up. This person doesn't actually end up coming to you. Um, they probably know better before they you know show up here. And but somebody who's, hey, I just I'm, I've heard about this. I can get it through my local fucking shady wellness holistic uh, mm -hmm. it off brand off label. And I just want to lose a couple pounds before summer. Like are is what are you saying to that person? What is the conversation? What would it sound like? Yeah. So, you know, that person, I would, I would try to explain, um, and I do this with all my patients. I try to teach them, you know, in a relatively simplistic manner of the obesity pathophysiology, the disease. And then I also talk about what we care about. Like I said, it's what's on the inside that counts, what harm is the excess or abnormally distributed adiposity doing. And if someone doesn't truly have clinical obesity, I would explain to them that that's why these medications aren't uh, indicated in your case. Now, it might be someone who has a history of obesity and lost a lot of weight. Now they're really, really, really struggling with hunger and they, they can't maintain. Now that's a little different, right? Yeah. But, but for the, you know, for the, you know, the cosmetic type people, I would just explain to them. And this is why, um, you know, they're not indicated. Now, if they said, well, um, yeah, this guy down the street is going to sell me a compounded version of semaglutide that has been an issue. I would just say, you know, that's your prerogative if that's what you want to do and pay that. But there is zero regulation of whatever that compounded stuff is. I don't know how they're getting it. I don't know the safety of it. Um, I don't know how it's being manufactured, if it be, even is true. Um, they're obviously charging you for it just directly. There's a, there's a bunch of conflicts of interest. Um, I wouldn't trust it. I wouldn't take it personally. And that's what I would tell that person. And I would say, Look, I know, you know, you know, I care about your mental health, care about how you feel about yourself, 
but it is, it's truly what's on the inside that counts. You're, you're healthy. I want to help you be healthy. And that's my role as your physician. Yeah. It goes back to risk reward. I mean, it goes back mm-hmm. to, like, if you don't know, like if you want the benefits this, from this forever, like you're probably looking at some, some amount of this forever. And it doesn't seem like there's a huge on the inside benefit. And if there's on an inside risk, then, okay, then th- that, that isn't tipped in your favor, probably most mm-hmm. likely. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. That has been super helpful discussion. I'm I'm curious, uh, you know, just as more comes out, as terzepatide gets approved for obesity, uh, what we're going to start to see. I'm curious for my own clients who are on semaglutide or on Wagovi, mm-hmm. you know, what that like. It's not like all of a sudden that becomes <laughs> that's become not a great, uh, not a very helpful root intervention for them. But I'm curious if there's like going to be a big swing of like, hey, you know, see if you can switch over to this. Like. It, is there, if there's a big enough reason to have a client and then go in and say, Hey, I've heard this might be better. Should I switch to this? I mean, uh, yeah. so I would say no. So, the, so another thing that we, we didn't really touch into is that early response to therapy. So all weight loss medications, and also, like I said, lifestyle interventions, remember I said, well, these are lifestyle responders. So anybody who seems to lose about 5% weight loss with whatever intervention in the first few months that predicts long-term uh, better, be, better benefits. So even in like lifestyle, um, you know, they can lose 5% of their weight in the first few months. The studies show more like eight, nine, 10% weight loss, you know, over a year. Um, same with some of the other medications that are not as uh, potent as these. And so, you know, if someone on, you know, say Wegovi has lost 16% of the weight, they've maybe remitted their metabolic syndrome or their, you know, their diabetes is in sort of remission. I put that in air quotes yeah. as you, um, because that gets funky. Then, then I would, I would not change it because I wouldn't want to fix what's not broken. Now, on the other hand, let's say, let's say they've lost 9% of their weight. They've done well on Wegovi, but they still have, um, you know, a lot of complications that they haven't quite uh, put in remission. We still need to use other medications to treat those complications. Then say, yeah, you know what? Hey, let's try it. And we've done that for sure. Um, we've definitely done a lot of changing from, um, say, some of the other GLP-1 receptor agonists to terzepatide. So um, the, the same company makes dulaglutide, which is, again, a, it's, a, it's a good weekly GLP-1 receptor agonist approved for type 2 diabetes. But we've you know, I personally, and I know a lot of people have changed a lot of those patients over to terzepatide and had much more benefit, gotcha. you know, both, both glycemically and for weight loss and stuff like that. The little caveat that I mentioned way at the beginning was we don't technically have the long-term cardiovascular outcome trial and, and dulaglutide or Trulicity does. And so there are some patients who have, you know, very high risk. They have established cardiovascular disease where they've done pretty darn well overall. I'm like, okay, you know what? Eh, we don't really know. Let's just keep you on this. However, like I said, the analysis of all the phase three trials so far does show like there's, it certainly predicts that benefit. So I've been a little bit more open to it now if I think they really need all the other clinical uh, benefits of the extra weight loss. Yeah, the, the, my personal experience, which certainly can't be extrapolated beyond that, is that the clients have done so well on semaglutide on Wagovi. And see, and and you know, are are almost in a place right now. We, frankly, that if I'm an insurance company, like who's again doesn't understand this really. Like they are incredibly healthy. <laughs> You're looking under the hood, like these, I've seen a lot of blood work. Talk to them about in, you know interaction with the doctor. They're going, it's going incredibly well. And on the inside, they're incredibly healthy, and it's been an incredibly mm-hmm. successful experience. You know, anywhere from thirty to seventy pounds I've seen, and and uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Where it's like, hey, for that person who's like accomplished whatever clinical goal that they had or or looks like they are going to because things are going incredibly well we don't have a good reason to be like yeah jump ship and get onto this you know this drug we just don't have a good reason to go ahead and do that if things are working um right. if you know if maybe you, it isn't going as well and, and there's a hypothetical benefit then maybe it's yeah it's open you know worth trying potentially but yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah it makes a lot of yeah. sense exactly <laughs> excellent all right, Doc, I'm going to let you get out of here. Drop drop a line. All right, cool. Find you, where can people interact with you on social, all of that stuff, and, and uh, I appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks, Doc. I uh, will speak to you soon. Let's uh, let's let's uh, send send over that endocrine stuff, and um, I, okay. I'd love to give it a read, and maybe we'll have you back on to kind of break some of it down. Will do. Sounds all good. Right. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.